You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. All right, let's open the Bible now. I want to wrap up our time this summer in the Psalms with the 12th Psalm. And so if you have a Bible, you'll find it right smack dab in the middle of the entirety of the Bible is the 150 Psalms or songs or hymns, prayers, exclamations to God inspired by the Holy Spirit. And, and we're going to be in the 12th Psalm. The, this is what we, I hope, will use as a springboard into walking through an Old Testament book, a wisdom or writing known as Lamentations. That is, that one-third of the Psalms are classified as laments, more literally agonizing, expressing deep sorrow, expressing profound disappointment and anguish. And the Psalms give language to this. It, It not only allows for it, but it encourages it. We see in Colossians and Ephesians, the New Testament church is encouraged to speak to one another with what? With psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And and, and we are regularly supposed to speak the language of sorrow and despair as an act of faith, as simply one key component to the life of faith in a broken, fallen world marred by sin. But while a third of the psalms are classified as some form of lament, Many are unclassifiable, but at least two-thirds of the psalms include some sort of explicit lament over sin or suffering or injustice. And so chapter 12 here, or excuse me, the 12th psalm in the Psalter is an invitation for a corporate lament. We've seen before individual lament. We've walked through Psalm 22, for example. Psalm 51, a lament and a a penitential psalm to to lament over sin. But this is a corporate lament. That is, this is meant to be something that together we recite. Something that we hum together. And so I want to invite you, as, as we've done before, into what I would describe as a godly sorrow. To invite you into a despair. A despair not... Not that you'll stay in, but a despair of life in this world such that you'll genuinely hunger and long for life in the next. It is good and right to despair over the brokenness and sin in this world because it reminds us we were not made for this world. And so we lament as a part of the life of faith. Experience of deep comfort, mercy, and grace of God comes from acknowledging sin and its effects. So let's read this together. We'll walk through it with one another today. Psalm 12. The ESV summarizes, and maybe your Bible gives a similar caption, the faithful have vanished. To the choir master, according to the Sheminith, a psalm of David. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished, from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips. The tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Because the poor 
are plundered. Because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words. Like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side, the wicked prowl. As vileness is exalted among the children of man. The Hebrew title for the book of Psalms literally is Songs of Praise. Songs of Praise. That is, the, the Psalms, more literally, are a type of praise. And yet, that praise is expressed in a variety of different ways. It's praise to God to confess sin. It actually brings praise to God to express many of the Psalms with thanksgiving for all that God has done. It is praise to God to point out all that is good and right about the character and nature of God. And yet also, what is almost always, I would say, veiled by our own Western mentality, and what I would argue today as an experience of great prosperity, it's actually praise to lament. Now I'll say more about this in a couple of months to come, but the best way to say it is this, that Complaining about God is blasphemy. And yet Psalm 12 shows us here that complaining to God is included in this collection of 150 psalms or songs of what? Praise. Complaining about God is blasphemy. It, more literally, it'd be like gossip, right? It's, it's a slander to God. But complaining to God is praise. It's praise. And not only are we invited to, we are in many ways commanded to confess what is true about a broken, fallen world. And so as we walk through the format of this particular psalm where it's pretty clear, but even through other psalms of lament and even the book of Lamentation that, that is about the fall and destruction of, of this great and beautiful kingdom built by King David, the fall of the temple in Jerusalem, we're actually invited to despair over sin and suffering in the world. Here's how I'll summarize it, and I'll continue to come back to this over the next couple of months. Biblical lament is this. We, there's three, I think there's three key ingredients. You could argue there's more, but there's at least these three. We, one, go to the Lord. Two, we express our problems. And three, we trust Him with the result. We take it to the Lord. You look at the very first word here. It's like a, a child with, with the inability to, to like syntactically correct a, uh, like create a sentence. Did you catch that? Save. It just starts more literally deliver. Uh, if you have the NIV or another translation, it might say help. But it literally save or deliver. And you're, in some sense, you're kind of like, well, that's not even a complete sentence, right? Just deliver. It doesn't say from what or it doesn't say... Much more, just deliver. But then, did you see the key ingredient after that? Oh, Lord. 
Right? And if you look in your translation there, it probably will have LORD in all caps. And you and I know this as we've walked through the Old Testament before. That's, that's not just a, a, a small name to talk about God. That's, that's the name Yahweh, the God who is the great I Am. The God of the Bible who creates and redeems. And so you see the first ingredient. It goes to the Lord. Deliver, O Lord. Now you know this already. That, those threefold ingredients to to go to the person who can help, tell them what's wrong, and then allow them to fix it. You know this, right? If, I mean, this is visible almost every other place in your life, and, and yet that life of faith is meant to be the fullest culmination of that. Right? Like if, let's, say, let's say one of you broke your arm, okay? You broke your arm, and, and your arm, it doesn't work, and it hurts when you try to make it work. For those of you who are safe and nice, you don't, I just told you what a broke, you don't even know what a broken arm was like. That's what it's like doesn't work, and when you try to make it work, it hurts. And, and, and you, you know, I can't go on, okay? And so if you broke your arm, you would go to a physician. And once you got to the physician, you would say, hey, my arm doesn't work. And then you would trust the physician, him or her, with some sort of ability to help, put you in a cast, x-ray, you name it. But if you remove any one of those ingredients, you're in trouble, Right? So, for example, if you, I don't know, maybe you broke your arm, it doesn't work, but you go to, I don't know, your friend. Or maybe you go to, I don't know, a mechanic. Hey, my arm's broken. You can imagine their ability, or in this case, inability to help, would be the first thing that you see. But notice the second thing. What if you got to the doctor? Let's say you went to the right place, a person who could help you with what ails you. And they said, hey, how are you doing? And you, like many of you said this morning, lying through your teeth, said, fine. I'm good. I'm fine. All right, so you made it to the right person, but, but you haven't expressed what's really true. You haven't expressed what's real. Are you in any pain? No, pain is fear leaving the body, right? Some, right? Some sort of platitude. You probably learned in a, I don't know, I learned these in a locker room. Like, yeah, pain is my friend. That's why I'm never lonely, right? Not helpful. So you might have made it to the right place, but, but if in the right place you, you, you don't express what's really true, what's really broken, what's really wrong, then you're hindered from experiencing any sort of relief. But then imagine you made it that far. You made it to the physician. You made it, hey, my arm, I think it might be broken. It doesn't work. It hurts. I get sick every time I touch it, right? Like, like that's when the doctor would say, like, well, let me see it. Or, and you're like, no, that's good. I'm gone. And you leave. Not trusting that the, that the person who might be able to help you could actually do that. Not trusting them enough to actually like lend yourself, to, to turn yourself and trust yourself to them. Right? Hey, I'm gonna, we're going to x-ray this thing. No, I'm fine. We're good. Right? And yet, as absurd as any of those things sound, that any person would consider with a broken arm to, I don't know, go, to to go to a, a, a plumber rather than a physician, to keep what's broken from the physician, and then to not trust them to help. As absurd as that sounds, most people who call themselves a Christian do exactly that with every piece of sin, suffering, and distress they experience. They turn to people and things that cannot help. They are not truthful about what is broken and how deeply they experience distress. And if they manage to do so, they don't really trust that the creator, the manufacturer, can refurbish and make it new. 
and we are expected in the life of faith. You'll see this throughout the entirety of the Bible. To go to the one who can help. The one who comes to be with us and for us in Jesus Christ as what? The great physician. Don't allow you in the medical field. Don't let that go to your head, okay? That's not... If that goes to your head, you should repent of that. And you should, you should introduce yourself as, I am the deficient physician, right? I'm not great, right? But, but the one who comes to heal, to, to fix what is broken is the one who desires to hear, in fact, expects and commands that we express all that is broken, and then trust. Trust that the God who designed all things knows how to make them new. That's biblical lament in a nutshell. And in many ways, that, that summarizes the penitential lament, the individual or corporate lament like we see here. It starts, you saw, going to the Lord. And then expressing what's broken. Did you catch that? A whole litany of things that we'll walk through together that's, that are broken. It's, things are not right. Literally, the faithful have vanished. I'm alone. I'm left. There's no one but me. And yet then, a declaration of trust in verse 6 that God's word is sufficient. God will restore. God will get up. God will rise and take upon the plight the poor and the plundered, to grant them relief. That's biblical lament. Another way I would say this is to experience this rightly rather than to avoid negative feelings. This is, this is what I want to say. It is good to feel bad about sin and suffering. I said this last year, one of the things that I wanted to, uh, man, I, I mean, I think the Bible sees things like pandemics coming along before I, I do, but one of the themes of some of the psalms we walked through last summer is that I told you, I want you to get good at feeling bad. I, I want when you feel bad to know, oh, this is how you should feel. When you are not in your home, when you're away from the place that God has created you to exist, when, you, when you're living in a broken, fallen world marred by sin and replete with suffering, you shouldn't be happy. And it is good, in fact, it is in agreement with the heart of God to feel bad about sin and suffering. In fact, it's bad to feel good about sin and suffering. Verse 8, the end of this particular psalm, alludes to that, doesn't it? On every side, there's wickedness and vileness. That is, people who have made friends with evil, made friends with sin and suffering, made friends with oppression, made friends with lying, flattering, deceiving. And the psalmist is making very clear, Lord, cut those things off. Because it is bad to be friends with those things. Here's my personal hope in this, in this particular psalm, as you see those pieces play out, but also in the weeks to come, you'll hear me say, I want you to feel bad about sin and suffering. I want you to feel bad. I want you to feel good about God's mercy towards sinners and sufferers. I want you to feel bad. And that's wild, right? Like, pastor wants me to feel bad. That'll blow your mind. And here's why your mind's blown. You have probably bought in to the myth of Western, if not American, prosperity. You've bought into it. It's one thing to buy into it in some sort of nationalistic way. It's much worse to have bought into it under the guise of calling yourself Christian. There's lots of measures for this, right? 
How many, how many selfies or how many photos do you share, disseminate, or hang on your wall that proudly display you crying? How many selfies do you take of yourself with a face wrought with despair? You just wouldn't do it, would you? And dig deep under that, friend. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you want people to know you're in despair? Why? Because you've probably bought into the myth of prosperity. That really, health, wealth, pleasure, contentment, and comfort in this world is all there is to it. Like We are alive for the pursuit of happiness. Here's another way to think of this. This may hit a little closer to home. I, I, I assure you I have nothing against what would be known as Christian radio, right? Christian radio. But if, if one-third, a full one-third of the psalms in the Psalter are laments, what percentage of songs on Christian radio would be classified as lament? You get it? Who are your heroes? I imagine you see them at some sort of crowning achievement of success. Some, some person who's attained that pleasure that you really want to attain for yourself. But if all the while that ignores the deepest problem that the human heart faces, namely that we have been alienated from a perfect and righteous creator, then it's all for nothing. It says, save, deliver, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. He begins with a, a lament of loneliness, a feeling of abandonment. The faithful have completely vanished from among the children of man. Now, now we don't really know the setting that, that David's writing from here. We don't know if he's writing from, uh, you know, when, when his friends turned on him and tried to kill him. We don't know if it's later when his son turned on him and tried to kill him. And there's a sense in which you're like, well, either one kind of fits, right? And so David, who, who, who lived and understood what it was to, to be betrayed, to experience suffering in this life, he buried, his, he, he buried children, he, he buried loved ones, he, he watched things fall apart around him. Now we don't know exactly the setting, but whatever the case was, at that time David was looking around and feeling like he was all alone, like no one was there with him. He was the only one left. He was the last one that's faithful. Now, we don't know how justified he was in feeling this, but we do know that the Spirit inspired him to invite us to feel this way and understand where it comes from. So I'll start there. Do you know what it feels like to feel like you don't fit in? Like, do you know what it feels like to feel like an outsider? Side note, my best friends are all people that, that regularly don't think they belong, right? Those are the most interesting people. But that's because he's saying it like, this seems to be part of the existence. Part of living in a broken, fallen world, alienated from our creator, is a deep, deep experience of dissatisfaction with the community that's available to us. A regular feeling of alienation. And he's saying, that's, that's where I, whatever's happened, he's like, I feel alone. No one is on my side. And so then he begins to explain to us what that kind of, did you catch it? Like people have turned away. The faithful have vanished. She's all alone. People have apparently turned from the life of faith. 
And they're, they're doing their own thing. And then he begins to describe what it looks like when a people turns from God. And the theme that you'll catch here, that I, I want you to apply even and like open your eyes towards, when the culture of these people, this group turned from God, it was visible, did you catch that in the theme? Words. Just skim through that, right? Everyone, one, utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips. A double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all the flattering lips. The tongue that makes its great boast. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us who is master over us. Right? And so the theme of great destruction, of, of great corruption that he was experiencing, that left him alienated from the people around him, was expressed evidently in the way that people talked. He could see that they had left God's ways by listening to them talk. Now, now notice all those times that it mentions talking, and then he looks and turns to the, the hope in this. Did you catch it in verse 6? What is it? If, if, if the visibility of the, the corruption around him was, was, was evident in what was being said in these many ways, did you catch where he points us? It's what in verse 6 that, that is our hope? The words of the Lord. They're pure words. They're like a refined Silver, refined seven times even. But pay close attention to that. What he's saying here is that ultimately, one of the places you can see how a group of people have turned from God is the way they speak. So he turns to God. God, you save me. Not fight or flight, but looking to God. Like a child, right, capable of only one word, deliver. And then he begins the lament, and his lament includes what he sees. Now notice, many people can express lament. And some of you, even now, if I said, yeah, we're going to go through lamentations, many of you who are in this room, maybe you're predisposed to, to deep, deep sorrow and depression, I would just say, join the club. That's in, in, a, in a culture that's bought into individualism, we were told that if you'll just like pursue all of your own interests, that that'll make you happy. And so we're walking around anxious and depressed because we bought into a lie. And we, we feel like we feel a low-grade anxiety no matter what. Right? Everyone's walking around with this kind of low-grade experience of like, I'm not really good enough. Things aren't really what they're supposed to be. And so he says, take that lament, but take it to God. And so many people might express lament, but they might do it out of unbelief in a godless way, even if they were to use Christianese kinds of language. But notice, it, this is not a lamentation to the culture. It's not even a lamentation against the culture. The lamentation of a believer is not to the culture, it's to God. An unbeliever can complain. A believer prays. They go to God. And so often we, we buy into the lie that we can just simply complain at the culture or win some sort of culture war against them. And, and, and maybe that will play out at some point. But step one is that we go to God the author of things like culture. We go first to him. 
We come to God about this broken thing. Rather than a complaining spirit against the world, it's a spirit that looks to God, who actually delights to hear our complaints. I mean, like, I've had these in my own life, right? As, As a father, my daughter's like, asks me for things that they're not getting that I am delighted to give them. A daughter might come to me and say, Daddy, can we cuddle on the couch? Yes! All the time! And down deep, there's a, it's a complaint, isn't it? It's like, Dad, I'm not getting enough attention. We need to cuddle with me on the couch. But you know, even in a, as, a, as a sinful, broken father, there's in me, it's like, of course! All the time, why not? Well, let's cancel everything and only cuddle on the couch. And so I don't receive that complaint that, like, Father, I want more of you. I don't receive that as, a, like a, as an insult. I, I delight, like, yes, I'm so glad you asked. I was kind of hoping you would. Even recently, like, I had a, my, my oldest daughter, it said, hey, can, uh, can we watch the football game on Sunday night? I'm like, yes, of course. And notice here that, like, The psalm doesn't rebuke us for complaining and asking for things to God. Instead, it's as if to say, this is how you do it. Because the Lord delights to comfort his people. And rather than having a complaining spirit, we we look to God because God delights to grant us those things. He built us with the capacity to long for them. That longing for those things, for justice, righteousness, right? Comfort, pleasure. Who invented those things? And who implanted in them? deep into the human heart. They're not a flaw. They're a feature of God's design. And the way that he cries out is against, or he cries out to God, is about, excuse me, the culture and how it speaks. I'll just walk through what I would describe as multiple ways to say the same thing. Did you see that? Everyone utters lies. Okay? But then he like, basically gives us synonyms or types or subcategories of lies. Did you catch all of them? First one is lies, but after that, what what categories of lies are? Flattery, did you see that? Double-hearted speech, right? Hear flattery again. Boasting, and then an arrogance to this idea that we have in our tongue the ability to help ourselves. Quite literally in verse 4, it says our lips, when it says our lips are with us, more literally it's like we own our lips. I own my lips. And notice, those, let me walk through them really briefly. These are categories of the same thing, lies. And he's, and he's very clear and thorough about how lies get, get displayed in, in the faithless people around them. And that's interesting because... We have, like, euphemisms at this point for lies, don't we? Right? One of my favorite phrases that's emerged over the last, I don't know, I guess maybe like four or five years is the phrase fake news. Like, that's a really nice way to call someone a liar. Part of it is like, okay, part of the life of faith is, is pulling back the layers of euphemism and symbolism and seeing it for what, that's a lie. When you, say something, when, you, when you say something that is fake news, the Bible calls that lie. It, it ought to, it ought to like resonate with us, right? Like, 
David's despairing, like, oh, man, there's liars everywhere. And we're like, well, you know, I wouldn't call them that. Lies a bit harsh. Fake news, maybe. And then he gives the categories of lies. I want to walk through them. The first is flattering lips. Flattering lips. One of the first categories of lies that he gives is a flattery. That is saying something nice, expecting something in return. I, I, I speak to, to people who are, who are unmarried, but maybe desire to be married and are pursuing that in dating. Man, this is, this is probably one of the most dangerous places to be. Experiencing or even engaging in flattery. And I would say to any man or any woman, do not date or consider hanging around with a person unless you're my wife, in which case she made the exception for me, and I've outgrown these things. just want to be very clear. I want to be completely hypocritical here. But do not date or consider marrying a person who can't just say something nice to you and put a period on the end of the sentence. Hey, I like you. I find you to be intelligent, smart. That's it. Bye. It walks away. Because the majority, if not overwhelming the majority, of nice things that we share with one another is to get something in return, isn't it? Saying something nice, so we'll get something back. So much so that most of us, have, we don't even, we're almost freaked out. We don't know what to do when someone hands us a compliment and wants nothing in return. We're like, do I say something back? Do I... Because that's the, that's the transaction here. And I want you to see, it is, as David tells us, a form of lying. It's deception. It's saying something nice, wanting to gain. It's not communicating, it's manipulating. And all I will say is, we're good at this. We're really good at this. We're made uncomfortable even with just something nice is said and, and we want nothing in return. So my first invitation to you is, what would it be like to be a group of people who build, as Paul tells the Romans, a culture of honor, expecting nothing in return? And I mean deep kinds of honor, right? I shared this with young men. Proverbs 31 says it, of this beautiful woman, charm is deceiving and beauty is is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. 99.99999% of what I hear single men say to single women fits under the category of vanity and deception, charm and beauty. I dare you, I dare you to honor a woman disregarding her appearance. I dare you. That would blow everyone's mind. We don't even know what to do with it. Hey, I noticed your godliness. I noticed your faithfulness. I noticed how helpful you were. I noticed how intelligent you are. I noticed how servant-hearted you are. I noticed how, how, how like, absolutely faith-filled you are. Right? That, those are the kinds of things that we ought to do. And it says here, like, to do something else is a form of lying. What does it look like to be a people who passed off honor expecting nothing in return? You know who that might look like? Second form, flattery, right after that, double-hearted speech, right? Did you catch that? Literally, a heart and a heart. You'll hear this elsewhere in the Psalms and the Proverbs as double-mindedness. 
Think of it as disintegration. What we, what we value ought to be integrity. Literally, something is integral. It is, it is one. It's same. If it's integrated, that is, it's, it's integral, it's one, it's this way over here, this way over here, this way over here, right? Like, and if a person has integrity, they're this way over here, they're this way over here, this, they're this way over here. What they say over here is what they do over here. But a form of lying is a disintegration, a disintegrated self, namely an inconsistent self. And, and one of the other ways we lie is that we just simply say contra- contradictory things and reveal our duplicity. Matthew 12 and Luke 6, Jesus is quoted saying in more than one occasion that out of the overflow of the heart comes the words of the mouth. And yet, we regularly say things and live in a way that's contrary to what we say. Same thing. What would it look like to be a group of people radically committed to living what we say and repenting when we don't? And recognizing that under, it's just a lie, right? I, I share this as a joke with many people. It's just, this is something, man, this is just kind of in our culture. We, we say things like no offense, right? And that's perfectly acceptable to start a sentence with the words no offense. And then do what? Be completely offensive. But as long as I lied to you at the beginning of the sentence and said no offense, then you can't get mad at me, right? What would it look like to be a group of people that say one thing and live it out? And foster that kind of encouraging sort of environment where it's welcomed when someone says, hey, I heard you say this, but then I saw you did this. And we go, thank you, thank you. And we're invited to lament over the pervasiveness of sin. A third kind of lie, did you catch that? Uh, After that was a a double-heartedness and inconsistency was boasting. Boasting, that is just simply having an inflated sense of self-satisfaction. Boasting in or pointing to how great we are. And notice, it, it was right after his uh, imprecatory, that is, he wanted to bring on judgment for people who do this, may the Lord cut off all flattering tongues or lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. I mean, what would it look like for us to be the kind of people who are content to make very little of ourselves in order to make much of our Creator. Isn't this one of the most beautiful things that, the, that as we were walking through the Gospel of John, John the Baptist modeled? Jesus was becoming very popular, and, and the disciples of John the Baptist were like, hey, we need to go over there. Like, he's getting all the press. And what does John the Baptist say? No, 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 no. I must decrease in order that he might increase. God doesn't share the glory, and and in fact, we don't either. And we will either glory in ourselves, boasting is the word here, or we'll glory in him. And it's tempting to think that we can do both, isn't it? Maybe. Yeah, glory to Jesus, but I mean, kind of me also, right? Kind of some for me. And this is under the category of a lie evidence that people have turned from the life of faith. Last, arrogance. Speaking of yourself greater than you are, exaggerating your own importance. But just notice how comprehensive he is about these lies, and then notice the fruitfulness of these lies in our own 
in our own world and our own life in our own lives, lies cheapen and corrode all human intercourse. They destroy our ability to, to interact in any meaningful way. As soon as truth is breached, we're, we're lost. We have no way to relate to one another. And these lies are the ways that David laments the visibility and then his experience of loneliness. And yet, in contrast, look, look what he says. This is all happening around me. May God stop this. He says, our lips are over us, is what a liar will say. Who is master? Right? The, this idea that I own my lips, quite literally. I, I'm in charge of what I say. This is especially important for American Christians. Uh, often the, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights gives us freedoms and rights that the Bible does not. Namely, the First Amendment. Freedom of speech. Right? James tells us that our goal by the power of the Holy Spirit is to tame the tongue, not to let it loose. I mean, isn't that a temptation? No, no, I'm in charge of what I get to say. Words are mine, but notice where he connects them. That's actually saying God is not in control. God is not master. It's actually putting in place of God's word our own. So beware, there's good and beautiful things that we have but they can be temptations to be more than God has created us to be. I'll just point out one of the ways you see this. I, I own my lips, right? I, I get to own what I say and what I mean. One of, the, one of the ways I've heard this is acceptable in the last 10 years. You heard that phrase, I'm just saying. You heard this? When someone says something and they have to backtrack, they're like, you know, maybe something offensive, like, you're really dumb and ugly. And, you're, and, and then when they realize you're not going to, like, oh, thank you, when you, you're like, that's mean, or that's wrong, and, and what do they do? You, you, you go like, I'm just saying. Isn't that a way of saying, no, 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 I get to, I get to determine what I mean. My lips are my own. What I say is true. Who cares how you perceived it? Who cares the effects that it had? I own my lips such that we kind of backtrack, and the way we backtrack, we're saying, no, I can say what I want, because I was, after all, just saying. But notice he equates that with saying, like the faithless, there is no master over me. I am master. I get to determine what's true and false. But then, this is the first psalm of lament in the psalms, in the Psalter, that God actually responds and inspires David to respond on his behalf. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. Did you hear that? Did you catch that? Like, the Lord arises and delights to give the poor and oppressed that which they long for, right? Do you hear it? Like, Daddy, do you want to cuddle with me on the cat? Yes! I will, yes, the Lord delights to respond to the cries of his people. Why? Verse 6 tells us why. Because in the end, the words of the Lord are pure. Literally, his sayings, his promises to be for us, his promises to never forsake us, his promise to, to deliver us, to be slow to anger and abundant in mercy. He keeps them. They're pure. They've been refined. They've been tested. They've been tested by oppression. They've been tested by history. Verse 7, and he will keep them. Not only will he utter those promises, but he will maintain them. And the sure words 
that guarantee that the longings of our heart will be satisfied are the words of God. He will keep them. Practically speaking, I hope at least this helps as we begin to think about how to, how to, to resume gathering as gospel communities in our city in the midst of a pandemic. Um, the importance of words. The importance of words. Words matter. They matter enough to speak clearly and as biblically as possible and speak apologetically when we don't. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Hopefully we be a people that value words. A people that value expressing words to God. Speaking directly to the Lord. Remember I told you the very first ingredient in verse 1, going to the Lord? Because it's slander if we go elsewhere. That's gossip in the church, right? And the right response in gossip, if you come and slander someone else, my first response is to be, hey, have you talked to that person? Right? That's like that, that simple. Have you told that person? Or are you going? And you're like, well, I'm going, okay, let's go. Let's talk. Right? That's, that's the first thing. Have you told that person? Notice that's exactly what the psalmist is modeling for us to our God and Father. Every complaint that, that I say to you, the first thing you should say is, have you talked to him about that? Have you, have you talked to the Father about this? And I'm like, well, you mean, okay, let's do that now. Maybe the most practical thing is like, if the words of the Lord are what's pure because he promises to deliver us, man, just practically speaking, just write down this week how much time you spend in this, and then maybe how much time you spend on this. Maybe for many of you, like the right thing to do is like, hey, I've told a lot of people this, this uh, in the last six months, hey, stay off social media, man. Your social media privileges are revoked because social media just causes you to sin. I mean, I, I, may, maybe, maybe social media for you isn't surrounded by flattery and boasting. I don't, maybe that's, help me out on that one. But, but if those are just forms of lies, hey, what would it look like for us to commit, as we saw in the book of Philippians, to just being reasonable people? And the way that happens is that we root ourselves in the pure words refined by God's promise-keeping work in the world and maybe ingesting less of other kinds of words. Notice at the very end here, it doesn't end on a major note. I heard one pastor, uh, Sinclair Ferguson, says it this way, when we read the Psalms of Lament, Psalms meant to be sung, it's most likely they were probably uh, to be sung on, on something like a bagpipe in a minor key. These are, these are inherently sad songs. Because to express that sadness to God the Father is to experience comfort. Because notice where it ends. The Lord's going to keep his promise, but did you see the last verse, verse 8? How happy would you say this ending is? On every side the wicked prowl, as violence is exalted among the children of man? Right? Like, doesn't, doesn't that like kind of push against your Western sensibilities? Like, there's supposed to be a happy ending here, isn't there? Like, where's the happy ending there? But notice what the psalmist is telling us. God's words are sufficient... His promises are true in spite of the circumstances. 
In fact, they're most true, most bright, most hope-filled when we're surrounded by hopelessness. They look the most pure when they stand against the backdrop of what he describes as vileness. God's promises are true, not in a way that's contingent upon our surroundings, but in spite of them. And I will leave you on this. That in Christ, God has offered the fulfillment, the yes to every promise. He has kept every one of them, verse says. He has guarded us, Philippians tells us, in, the spite of a crooked, in spite of a crooked generation, so that we will experience hope amidst the suffering, even in expressing the suffering. In Jesus' high priestly prayer, he says, look, I, I, I'm going to leave you, and I've prepared them. But in verse 15, notice, he says, I do not ask. This is Jesus praying on our behalf to the Father. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, right? Because in verse 8 of, of the 12th Psalm, you're kind of like, hey, is this going to get better, right? Like, you know, all the friends are going to come back, right? The, the psalm started where all the faithful people left, and I was all alone. I assume the end of the psalm is that all my friends come back, right? And he says, no, you're stuck there alone. But this isn't a mistake. This is part of God's good mercy to us. Jesus says, I'm not praying that you would take them out of the world, but what? But that you would keep them from the evil one. And Paul in Romans chapter 8 says it this way. There's suffering in every way, but in verse 37, there's a key word here that I want to encourage you with and encourage you to lament out of. No, in all the suffering, in all these things, we are what? More than conquerors. Like conquerors, that sounds fun. No, even more than that. You are more than conquerors, but notice the key word. It's, it's the preposition. In. The verse before, it says that they're being killed all the day long. They're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And, and where are they more than conquerors? In it. Right in the middle of it. They're experiencing the fulfillment of God's promise because they see something in spite of their circumstances. Do you see how verse 8 ends rightly? That you and I ought to lament the sin and destruction and distress and oppression in the world because we know that's not how God made it. And it's in and amidst that kind of suffering and sin that God's mercy is most clearly visible. It's in those things, in the middle of them, that we are more than conquerors. How do we know this? Because on that old Good Friday, Jesus didn't sideswipe the devil. He didn't outsmart the devil. He didn't outsmart the cross. He didn't like outwit Pontius Pilate, like, oh, hey, you know, off on a technicality. He bore the full weight of every bit of betrayal and suffering and wrath that the world had to offer. And in that suffering, through that suffering, in spite of all that suffering, he rose victorious over it. Friend, you and I have a promise that the Lord will fulfill. And every promise he's made to protect us is yes in Jesus. Such that now, in, in, God help us, COVID-19, in racial disharmony, in an economy that I don't, I don't know what's about to happen, right? In the, in the middle of this, in the right smack dab in the middle of it, we can cry out to God knowing He is mighty to deliver and mighty to save.
friend, do you remember the first word? It was, it was a bad sentence. It's just deliver, save. Deliver me, O Lord. I dare you to cry out to God that way today. I, I dare you to forsake all the other options and all the other solutions and just say, God, save me. God, save me. Maybe in this room you're not a believer. You're not a follower of Jesus. I'm so glad you're here. This invitation is especially for you. Even where you are, you say, God, forgive me. God, save me. God, help me. And when you say, God, this is all a mess. My life's a wreck. My marriage, my relationship, my When you say, all oh, this is a mess, he's not going to be like, whoa, hey. He's going to go, I know. I got you. I dare you this morning to look to God and cry out, deliver me. And experience the kind of grace and mercy that comes from turning away from everything else and trusting in him alone. Let's do that right now in prayer. God, thank you so much for how good you are to us. Thank you for how kind you are to us. I thank you especially that you do not dismiss our cries. I thank you you do not ignore them. You don't tell us to to be silent in them, but instead you delight to hear them. So I thank you for this 12th Psalm. I thank you for, for David leading us into crying out into despair, into despair, out of his despair to, to God the Father. I thank you for being that. God, we confess that we live in a time and place if we look closely around us marked by sin and suffering. Many things in our lives broken by our own sin, things we've done to hurt ourselves and others. And then many other things that are broken by sin of others against us. We can't fix this. We can't clean this up. Deliver us, O Lord. Deliver us, O Lord. We contend for your presence, for you to... Be with us and for us in the middle of this. God, fulfill that promise for us now as we look to Jesus as the right and good mediator of all your promises and blessings. Say yes to us for all of our cries in Jesus. Might we find comfort in him this morning. Might we find hope in him this morning. Might we find a sympathetic ear. Might we find him to be the mediator we need him to be. Grant comfort and deliverance in the midst of trial. Give us a a victory and hope in the midst of suffering. Give us the sure and good promise by faith this morning in Jesus Christ. Amen.